On the podcast, Earth Rewilding Project called to a halt by alien rangers as Ecospear returned to the bees and mole rats, previously in charge of matters. West of the sun and east of the moon is south of the border in Tir Nag. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talked to Clay Reynolds, author of Western fiction, both historical and modern. Reynolds is a Spur Award winner and Pulitzer Prize nominee whose deeply researched novels set in Texas historical times some consider on par with the likes of Larry McMurtry and whose highly regarded contemporary novels are bittersweet portraits of life in a sometimes hard and unforgiving land, a land in which I've lived for several years. And I think Clay knows wherever he speaks. All of Clay Reynolds' novels are available in ebook form from Bain Books, uh, by the way, and have been for several years. So we want to talk with him about this most excellent body of work and make you aware of it. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. We have an April ebook sale and it's a doozy of bargainiferous proportions. King Jerry's Spaceship, April Jerry Pornell ebook sale. To celebrate the new Starborn and Godsons Mass Market Edition, we're dropping prices on all Jerry Pornell ebooks. $2 off the ebook for Starborn and Godsons by Jerry Pornell, Larry Niven, and Stephen Barnes. And $1 off ebooks such as The Legacy of Herot by Jerry Pornell, Larry Niven, and Steve Barnes, and Beowulf's Children. Those are the two sequels to Starborn and Godsons. Best of Jerry Pornell, edited by John F. Carr, is also $1 off. Mamelukes. Janissaries, Lord of Janissaries, Footfall, and oh so many more. Anything the late, great Jerry Pornell had a hand in, we are discounting at the Bain website and across all of our ebook retailers. So check it out. Sale ends April 30th. Hey, I want to welcome Clay Reynolds to the podcast. Hey, Clay. Hey, Tony. Good to see you again. Nice to see you. Um, let me talk a little bit about you. Clay Reynolds is a legend of contemporary and historical Western fiction. He's the winner of the Western Writers of America Spur Award. You you did win a Spur. I know you've been nominated many times, right? I, I won two, actually. Won yeah, two. I, I, yeah, I won two at once, two in one year. So, uh, yeah, I That's won accurate. a creative nonfiction and for fiction for a short story. Uh, I never won it for a novel, unfortunately. Um, Franklin's Crossing was nominated and was a runner-up, but I never it it didn't win it that year. Elmer Kelton got it as usual at the in that era. Uh huh. I think he won about ten in a row. Well, let me go over your. All right, so uh, he's the creator of tales of grit, daring, mystery, and determination, bred by living in an unforgiving, starkly beautiful landscape, which is pretty much Texas and Sandline County, which is his invented Yachton and Patafa of, uh, we'll talk about that. Um, plus other places, of course, uh, Dallas, New York, you have places, you have all kinds of settings, of course, <laughs> <laughs> being a writer, 
of, of many things. Uh, Clay's first novel was The Vigil, which won an Opie in 1986. His third novel, Franklin's Crossing, was a was one of the Pulitzer Prize. Um, I know it was a semifinalist, something like that, but it was up there. It was nominated, yeah. Yeah, and received a bunch of other awards and honors. Uh, he's the winner of the Spur Awards, as we said. Um, articles have appeared in many national magazines. He's now retired professor of arts and humanities and creative writing after 20 years service on the faculty of the University of Texas at Dallas, where we met, um, where he served as professor of humanities and creative writing and also served as the director of creative writing and some other administrative functions there. Um, his published novels are The Vigil, it's, it's Agatite, right? Um, Agatite, that's correct. Agatite, Franklin's Crossing, Players, Monuments, Threading the Needle, The Tent Maker, Ars Poetica, Vox Populi, um, and a collection of short fiction, Sandhill County Lines. He's also written a bunch of nonfiction scholarly work and a very interesting collection and sort of critical celebration of the great dime novelist, Ned Buntline. Um, Clay lives on an acre of sunbaked ground in Lowry Crossing, Texas, which I have seen. Um, I think I have visited once. Um, with some of the writing students. Um, with his wife, Judy, and various animals, his kids are all grown. One's a veterinarian and the other is a structural engineer. So they turned out pretty good. Um, but what, what I want to talk about today is, um, is just sort of your body of work, which we have available um, at Bain.com and, and across uh, all of our distribution outlets, including Amazon. Um, that in ebook form um for instance we have this is the bain edition of franklin's crossing which is available as an ebook on uh, on amazon and bnn and wherever we distribute um maybe we could start by uh, telling tell us a, i like your origin story um <laughs> you want to start with that like uh, the fact that you didn't really think you were going to be a writer for right, a right, right. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I took uh, a single creative writing class, and as an undergraduate, I took it from Gene McKinney, who's a playwright of some note, back dating back to the '40s, and was on the staff of the. Uh, I, I started at Trinity University in San Antonio, which was a sort of a private liberal arts school. I was a drama major. McKinney was on the drama faculty. And he's a great guy. I mean, a sweetheart of a guy, but the course wasn't worth much. I, I mostly took it because I was interested in a girl that was in it. Uh, and we never, I don't think we wrote anything. I don't think we wrote a single word of creative material. He mostly told stories about his time on Broadway. And I, I, my main recollection of it is that the girl never went out with me and that his, somewhere or another, his cuff pants never quite met the top of his socks. And he set you know we sat in a circle and it was sort of an evident thing that kind of distracted from everything else and he smoked this huge briar pipe that filled the entire room with the most obnoxious smoke uh, and i'm a smoker so i that, that says a lot uh but i was on uh denied access to uh the creative writing classes after i transferred to ut i submitted work and it was all rejected and uh i was told i didn't qualify to be a creative writer there so i wound up with a history uh degree uh from there and then went on into graduate school and there's a whole story about why that happened the way it did but i won't go into that now but uh 
I wound up taking a master's, went back to Trinity, <clears throat> uh, ironically and uh, unavoidably, and did a master's degree there in English. Then I went to the University of Tulsa for my doctoral degree in modern letters, which is kind of a broader literary degree that encompasses a lot of humanities, uh, history and philosophy in particular, and literary theory and criticism. And when I finished at that, at Tulsa, and as well as at Trinity during my master's, there were a lot of creative writing people uh, there. And I had kind of a healthy contempt for them. I, I thought they were sort of dilettantes and they, they, did, they talked a lot about writing, but they didn't write very much. And they were also sort of a world to themselves. And they, I saw it as a kind of a way of getting out of doing the hard work of scholarship uh, in a sense. And I was kind of elitist about that. Uh, my first teaching job was at a small Texas uh, university down in the Southeast Texas, Lamar University in Beaumont. And uh, Lamar had a practice of bringing in and rotating through three-year appointments of people who largely had master's degrees and taught for three years in lower division classes and then were uh, let go. So that way they didn't have to tenure them, but they got the work out of them for slave labor wages. and. Uh, one year they hired on a three-year stand about five people who had MFAs, Masters of Fine Arts and Creative Writing, from various places. And these people formed a kind of cabal, a clique, as it were. And I was on the periphery of that because I had made friends with a couple of them. And uh, they had Friday afternoon drinking sessions and whatnot. And once again, I discovered they talked a lot about writing, but they didn't write very much. They, they mostly were interested in exchanging stories about publishers they knew and agents they had met and writing conferences they'd gone to and one thing and another, but they didn't really write very much. And so at the time I had small children, my wife worked nights and I had full charge of them from four o'clock on and couldn't get to the library to do research I had needed to do to publish scholarship. I was actively writing a lot of scholarship in those days. Uh, a good many uh, critical articles on books I was doing uh, and I did fact my, I, my, I had a drama book that I'd done on American drama that had been accepted for publication and was, I was revising that and doing all sorts of work, but I couldn't get to the library and take care of children at home and diapers at home. So I was at home and I had to stay awake. And I know that, uh, Tony has, uh, young children, I had young children. And so, you know what I'm talking about. You can't, you can't go, you can't take a nap when you're the only responsible adult in the household and uh, they might awaken and need something. And if I watched television, which was only three channel TV or tried to read or grade papers or the stuff I needed or wanted to do, I couldn't do it because I'd fall asleep, but I could sit at a typewriter and stay awake. And, and I sort of got in the habit of playing around with some fiction because I didn't have to go to the library. I could make up what I didn't know. And I wrote a couple of pieces and I, I finished actually two manuscripts and sent them off. Um, one of the people in the clique had become a very good friend and he gave me the names of two, two people. One was uh, an editor at St. Martin's Press, Dick Merrick, and the other was an agent in New York, Ethan Ellenberg. And I didn't know any of these people. He had met them at a writer's conference he had gone to somewhere and gave me these two shop-worn cards that were creased and folded and greasy. And I just, was in the habit of submitting scholarly work on a weekly basis. I was sending out something all the time. And so I 
went ahead and just packaged up these retyped, packaged up these two books, sent one to Merrick and one to Ellenberg. And that was in December of 84, I guess, and or in November of 84. And then at the end of December of 84, I had a very end of December during the holidays, I had a call from uh, Dick Merrick, who said he wanted to publish Agatite. I liked it. He thought it was quirky, different kind of novel, something a little offbeat, and he thought it would really do well. And I, he offered me an advance, a small one, very small one, and I sort of took it in stride. And I said, "Okay, thank you very much." And I was very excited, hung up, and stood there in my empty house because my wife was away with the children that afternoon. It was very cold outside. And I thought for a second, this is just the kind of joke that a lot of people would play on me. <laughs> this is, just sounds a little bit weird. And knowing this guy that it gave me the cards, I thought it would be just like him to do something like this. So I picked up the card, found out the card and, and called St. Martin's in New York and got the PBS, PBX operator, asked for Dick Merrick. She put me through to him. And I said, this is a strange question, but did you just call me? <laughs> he started laughing and he said, yeah. And we went over the same material again. And he said, you don't have an agent, do you? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, well, you need one. And uh, I said, okay, do you recommend somebody? He said, I can't do that. That's unethical. And I said, well, I'd sent this other book to um, Ethan Ellenberg. He said, oh, I know him and he's a great guy. I can say that without violating anything. So I immediately called, hung up and called Ellenberg, got his answering machine and said, I've just, I submitted a book to you about a month ago. I haven't heard from you, but I just placed a book with St. Martin's Press. Would you be interested in representing me? And he called me back in 10 minutes and we began a relationship we still have uh, after all these years. And um, uh, I don't know that we, I've ever made any money for him to speak of. He's been very diligent and very loyal and a very good sounding board for the kind of thing I wanted to do and very honest with me all the time. I, I appreciated that. So it's not always what I wanted to hear. He, he doesn't do that, uh, but he was a very upright I've guy. Dealt with, I've dealt with, he's one of our other author's agents. Um, as well. Yeah. He's a good guy. I mean, he's yeah. strong and he's, I think he's very demanding, but he, um, and he's very businesslike and very business-minded. And even though I know I've met his family and so forth, when I visited New York, I, I don't feel as if we're friends so much as close business associates, but we're trust, I trust him. And, uh, he's gives me, he's never given me bad advice except once in a while, his advice has been, I think overruled by an editor and to, uh, my advantage uh, and the advantage of the books in question. Uh, I wrote a crime novel that Ethan wanted me to cut several sections out of, and I did. And then the editor, this was at Carolyn Graff Publishers uh, in New York. Uh, they, the editor came back and said, well, you know, there's some holes here. There's gaps here that need to be filled. Can you fill these in these, and get, you know, and so I said, yeah, I think I can do that because I already had this stuff lying on my desk. All I had to do was just mail it to him. And so he just stuck them in the appropriate places. So sometimes instincts aren't always correct, but, um, that was where I got started. And suddenly I had three books come out in one year, the drama book and the two novels all came out the same year, but then I had a checkered, uh, and a lengthy and boring experience with a series of editors after that. 
and published. Did, um, so. did that original say Martin's uh, uh, editor? What was his name again? Dick Merrick. Dick Ma Richard Merrick. Yeah. Richard Merrick. Yeah, he uh, went on to yeah he went on to become president and publisher at E.P. Dutton. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, and then he was fired from that when they closed when, when Viking Penguin, which is a parent company of Dutton, closed them in, in 1989. And that's what the day it was a week after Franklin's Crossing hit his desk, uh, completed manuscript yeah. hit his desk. I believe he's got an imprint or did. So what is um, was that? With those two novels, The Vigil and Agatite, or was it? Yeah, uh, they were published uh, out of order. Uh, he decided to publish The Vigil first, uh -huh. and then six months later brought out Agatite, uh, thinking that it would attract a wider audience. He felt The Vigil was too focused on a particular kind of audience because uh -huh. it was such an intense story and a, a small story. It's much smaller. Uh, Agatite was a well, bigger canvas. So let's let's talk about the vigil, um, which is, uh, all right. So you grew up in where, Quina, Texas? Quana. Quana, Quana. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, um, which is up there between Wichita Falls and God Amarillo, knows where, yeah. Dalhart or a something. A Amarillo. Yeah, about halfway yeah. between Wichita Falls and Amarillo. Yeah. And um, this is, this is set in a, uh, this and the vigil is set in such a, a West Texas town, right? And right. It's about a woman who is sitting on a bench, and that's what it's about. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, the the genesis of that story is that I read this article in the when I was in graduate school in Tulsa, the Tulsa paper, and I think it was the World, which was the evening edition, might have been the morning edition. I don't remember, but any there were two papers a day in those days, uh, published a feature story in a Sunday edition about a woman who had been traveling from somewhere in the South, Atlanta or somewhere, en route to Oregon um, in the 1930s, 1936, I think it was, and who had, by train, and who, with her daughter, who was seven or eight years old, and her daughter asked for some money to go buy a chewing gum or candy. And at those days there were newsstands inside the depots. It stopped in what I recall to be Guthrie, Oklahoma, which was a, a ranch community out north and a little bit east of uh, Oklahoma City. And she had gotten, the, she watched the girl get off the train through the window of the train to the, of the Pullman car she was on, go into the depot and she didn't come out. And she waited and waited and waited. And the train was going. The conductor was signaling for it to move on. So she jumped off the train and went into the depot looking for it. Never found it. And they mobilized the whole community. The sheriff's posse was formed. They went out and searched. They looked everywhere. They never found her. Never found any evidence of her at all. And the woman waited there for, I think, two months. She stayed in, in, in Guthrie hoping for some word of her daughter. This is 1936, the height of the, or the depth of the depression. And Guffey probably had a population of maybe three or 4,000 people. It wasn't a very big place. And, um, but they surround, it was surrounded by ranch land, open prairie. They looked for, looked for, looked for, never found her. And then finally she got on the train and went on. She had other children, other obligations. 
And this art news article is about her return to Guthrie um, after all those years. No, 1976, I guess it was. So it's 40 years later. She came back. They had photographs of the little girl, photographs of the mother at the time, of the train station at the time, that sort of thing, published with this huge feature article they wrote. And it bothered me. I didn't have children at the time. We were years from children at the time. But it bothered me that a mother could just get on the train and go on. And that was the question that I sort of carried around for almost 10 years was how did that, how does somebody just get on a train and go on and go on with life? How do you do that? And you know, what sort of mindset do you have about that? So I started it as a short story, just about the mother contemplating all this from the bench from the bench of the court of, of a small town where this had happened and i made a lot of changes i moved it to texas i gave her a car instead of a train it was a car broken down i made the made it so she was stuck there to create a crucible effect which is something that fiction requires and i sort of set it up so that she had become something of a pariah in the town because it reminded the town of its collective guilt and not preventing this from happening. And I wrote the story in three days, that much of it in three days. I would say it ran about 120 pages, manuscript pages. And that was, it was too long for a story. I didn't know what to do with it. So I showed it to a friend of mine who was uh, an aspiring writer, but not part of that creative writing clique and he said you know the real story here is in the sheriff who is mentioned but not a character not really developed he said this is where your story is and he says you're missing that so i went back and wrote interchapters so every other chapter one is for the woman the others for the sheriff and what it developed into without my really trying to make it so was a love story but I love, a, not really a romantic love story, but a sort of love story of mutual dependence and, and based on loss and grief uh, as much as on aspiration and hope. And I think that that's kind of what it turned out to be. And um, it was not a mystery. I didn't want it to be. A lot of people got upset with me. Um, I got a lot of letters and comments uh, from readers about the fact that you know it, it's not that the mystery isn't solved the MacGuffin isn't really ever revealed and I, I thought well that wasn't the point the point was not on what happened to the little girl either in the real story or in my story uh, I made the daughter 18 in my story not a child uh, so she's older and uh, really an adult uh, but but about the, the impact of this on the parent, which I thought was far more evocative of, of emotional identity for a reader rather than the, uh, some sort of, of, of shocking mystery that was uh, uh, revealed at the end. Because I wasn't trying to write a crime novel. I was trying to write a, a, human, a novel about human reactions. So that's kind of where that came from. And... Um, it, it, it's not the only time agatite also begins with a true incident that sort of kicked off the idea for this for the story and um that, that is it. in the same setting 
it's in the same town. Yeah, I used I created this town um, called it Agatite, and Agatite is actually the name of a Texas ghost town, which was a mill town, and it's, a, it's in Hardeman County where I grew up. My grandfather used to take me out to the uh, site of it. There was nothing left except some foundations and wellheads and that sort of thing, where people had lived there around the oh, I would say the first twenty years of the twentieth century. And then it had died. It was a termination of a uh, railroad, a 1.5 mile railroad, the shortest incorporated railroad in the world uh, it was built as. And it was a gyp mill, a gypsum mine set adjacent to it. And so they would mine the gypsum ore and they would transport it a mile and a half down to the mill in Acme, which is where my father was from and born and reared up in, was Acme, Texas, which is in the same county and five miles from the county seat, Quanah, where I grew up. And uh, so Agatite struck me as a good name for a town. It had a certain flinty edge to it. I'm not sure what it meant. I've had some interesting queries about that since and suggestions. There's a, there's a street in Chicago, Illinois, Agatite Street. And a reporter from the Chicago Sun-Times sent me a photograph of the street sign and asked me if I knew where it came from. And I pieced together that the gypsum plant there was owned by uh, the parent company of it. It went to, this was turn of the century time, Burlington Northern Railroad, uh, which was a huge corporation. And they actually owned the mill, the company did. Burlington Northern also owned the Wabash Plaster and um, Whitewash Company, which was in Chicago and was adjacent to Agatite Street. So there may be a connection there that I mm. never could follow any, it, that was oh, a dead well, it end. certainly sounds geologic and, and yeah, yeah, and it sounds like dusty in West Texas. -y. Yeah. <laughs> and it's why gypsum, I've, you've probably never been around a gyp mine, but it's my grandparents' home, which was across the street from the mill was often in the summertime covered in white. If you took a photograph of it, you would think it was snow, uh, because it's gyp powder is gypsum yeah. and it affects the water and everything else. So, um, in, in an agatite, you got, a there, there's some crime going on because it's about, uh, what's the name? Frank Breedlove or Roy, Roy, B Roy Breedlove. Breedlove. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I have, yeah. I and he just of... sort of is a hapless fellow, but he's also a stone cold killer. But... Yeah. It's a generational thing. He is a stone killer, but he, well, I don't know if that's true. He's an accidental killer. Uh, he doesn't mean to be a killer. He's never meant any harm to anyone, which is part of his problem, but he certainly create, does a lot of harm to people. He, he is a hapless fellow. He is one of these guys, his father was a drunk, uh, and he knocks up his girlfriend and so leaves town and rather than leaves her at the altar pregnant and, uh, runs off and can't seem to face life. He's always running from something. And I think that's the, uh, that's the breed love that I wanted to create. Just, I, I, my inspiration for him came from an odd source. I don't know if you've read or, or recently or, or remember uh, the, the preface section to John Dos Passos trilogy USA. The first book is uh, 42nd parallel. And there's a very brief, like a page and a half little preface called yeah. vag 
I love and, that trilogy, but I don't remember the preface. Oh, the preface is short. And you, you might read over it because he doesn't figure in as a character anywhere. It's called Vag, V-A-G, and that for Vagabond. And it's about a guy hitchhiking across country and looking up at the uh, sky and seeing uh, an airliner or, or, uh, going across, course, period, 1920 virtue you know 20s or version of an airliner going across and thinking of people going places and and him down on this highway with his thumb out uh hitchhiking across country and it's the period he does it's very inspecific and and but it's very poetic which is and probably overwritten because despossus was a terrible overwriter but uh well, he, he developed kind of struck me. He, was a, he was a writer of uh, vignettes that he strung together but that's well pretty much yeah and the structure of i think it's great but way, anyway. yeah yeah well that's kind of the way agatide is structured along that same kind of various characters i've got i think 16 characters uh in agatide that, that 16 points of view all about one incident which is based on a news article that I, my father sent me from my hometown. There's another little community in my county named Goodlett. There's a barber shop, general store, blacksmith shop, uh, not much else there, farming community. And um, one afternoon, a, a young Hispanic boy came into the barber shop wanting a haircut. And they don't, the barbers there being old rednecks, racists, I'm sure uh rednecks refused his service and he asked if he could at least use the toilet and they had an indoor toilet but they told him no i didn't have one and we had to go out back to the outside john which they had an old outhouse sitting out behind the barbershop so the kid goes around there opens it up and finds a woman's body hanging in it and it's august and it's 110 degrees and the body had been hanging there a long long time um and it turned out to be a woman who had been missing for some time, uh, uh, subject of a missing persons inquiry already, but she had disappeared and it turned out it was suicide. She, she had hanged herself in this outhouse. And I don't know any more details about it than that. But my father thought it was interesting enough to send me a clipping from the hometown newspaper about it. And I thought, again it, it's indirect it wasn't the circumstances of the woman's death that intrigued me it was the impact of discovering it you know what would this be like to open that door and see this and i didn't want to do it from a child's point of view so i created a sheriff um who would be the one to open that door and i made him a tough guy I mean, he's a korean war veteran hero really uh, a man of substantial physical and uh, psychological strength. And suddenly he's confronted with this, what effectively is a mummified corpse. And I made it as horrific as possible. I'm not giving anything away here, but I made it as horrific as possible because I wanted it to be a, a sustaining image. And then I sort of extrapolated from that to create these multiple stories that all sort of come together in one kind of uh, apocalyptic moment at the end of the uh, at the end of this novel, when it sort of is a in a way a kind of a uh, apocalyptic novel, 
because it has to do with human misbehavior contributing to an ultimate tragedy. And I think that that's kind of what it happens. Now, I'm looking at this in retrospect. I wasn't thinking like that when I was writing it. I was simply trying to tell a story. Uh, I don't think in terms of theme or message or, you know, uh, what's the saying? If you want to send a message, call Western Union. Doesn't make sense to a younger generation. You have no idea what that means. But uh, but I guess if you want to send a message, use use a text message. Use your text text somebody on the phone. Uh, but I, I'm not trying to send a message. But it was sort of an, an analysis. Uh, one friend of mine suggested it's a portrait of the community. Yeah. yeah, my revenge on the community. <laughs> too, which I guess I did probably settle some scores there in a metaphoric sense, but they were mostly in my head, so nobody was aware of that. Um, I was, I didn't go back and live there ever. Once I left when I was 17, I never returned, except to see my parents, visit my parents. I was never there for more. I think one time I spent two weeks there when I went dead broke in Houston after uh, driving a seven-up truck and trying to work in a steel foundry. But that I had spent two weeks with a job to get enough money to go back to college on. And, but other than that, I was never there for more than two or three days at a time and hid out at my parents' house and didn't care to see anybody. So it's, it's it was sort of a, uh, in a way, uh, uh, you can't go home again kind of book. Um, yeah. But it, well, those yeah. towns out there, I mean, I've seen towns that got down on their luck. But that particular stretch, those towns died. Well, they were all railroad towns, and the railroad died, uh, and that—that's what well, I used to go through there all the time on the way from Dallas yeah. to Colorado and and other places. I was going. sure. Yeah. So. You know, you may have noticed they're all thirty miles apart, twenty-nine to thirty-nine, and the reason for that is that in the nineteenth century, a steam locomotive could only go about thirty miles without water, and so there would have to be a water stop every thirty miles, and uh, that was why the uh, towns are built the distance they are from each other and they were all railroad towns yeah. uh, all the way up highway 287 out of fort worth 130 mile interval after another all the way uh, to colorado so there's so, a particular kind of tarantula crawling uh desperate times that that stayed there um, yeah into the, yeah into into the present, although I've seen some of them are surviving a little bit, but all right. So, but your next book, you went back in the past and you did a, his, did. and in some ways, I mean, I don't want to, you know, you probably heard this way too much, but um, this is a, a Larry McMurtry kind of pathway too. Um, well, it was sort of, yeah, build that way. I, I should say that the cover you guys have for it, the dust jacket you're putting up, you put it up there as far as a period of the one that uh, Viking put on it uh, when they finally published it as a Dutton imprint. Um, but because they were clearly trying to imitate. They used the exact same typeface yeah, as Lonesome Dove. As long as, yeah, Lonesome Dove. Yeah. I actually finished the book. That is, I, I, I mean, I started the book before Lonesome Dove was published. And I finished it before I read Lonesome Dove. And so there was never any direct connection there. Uh, I knew Larry, and I've, I've known Larry, I knew he's now deceased, of course, last month or so, but I, I knew I knew him fairly well. And he and I talked a good deal, but never about writing. We talked about books mostly. 
and uh well he was the famous book collector oh he was yeah and very very well read uh and a really nice guy very shy guy but a very nice guy and he and i know when i was teaching at uh at utd i used to give my kids uh extra points if they would go out to his bookstore uh uh, prove that they had visited uh he he bought his entire hometown and made it into a giant bookstore that's correct yeah well he closed his he had rare bookshops in uh tucson houston georgetown and near washington dc and i think at one time one in new york as well and a branch in london so he had a lot of books and uh yeah he had three full uh, multi-story buildings full of books and these in, were like first edition they were beautiful books. yeah some of them yeah some of them were very rare books and uh he knew books he knew books he wrote a book called cadillac jack which is about a book collector it's a very interesting book it's not a very good novel but it's an interesting book uh, but uh in any case no i wasn't really thinking about that and i wasn't trying to write a western i was trying to write an historical novel and that was there's a difference because i was more interested in historical accuracy than i was in trying to form, write a formula plot with the usual um you yeah. know expected expected elements of, well, of that sort of is crossing in a way you know i it, i think of it a little bit like the canterbury tales with with the indians yeah. and it's it's different people's stories well it is it's structured like similarly to agatai i have uh, several different people i had to cut uh three characters out of it before publication for length reasons and the the, the history of the publish publication of that novel is a book in itself uh, and a cautionary tale to writers but uh i came in at 1700 manuscript pages and it was published at i think uh 750 manuscript pages so it and then cut after that in galley again uh but i had to lose two entire characters um and one partial character from it which just which i didn't like doing because i really loved those characters but you know we kill our own our babies as they say uh kill the things we love and maybe that was the wise decision people complained about the length more than anything else um but i wanted it to be historically accurate i wanted to set it during the red river wars which were uh, uh, at the time something that not a lot of people knew much about i think it's been more celebrated in historical texts since then and um in the same part of the country and in a sense i kind of wanted it to be an indirect indicator of the founding of the town which was because the main character is uh, a girl named Aggie. And um, so the idea is that uh, the town is named for her, though what, there's no, absolutely no basis in that, in fact, uh, just strictly my imagination. And I have a, you know, I probably wouldn't get it published today because of the varying points of view, and I'm not any of these things, never have been. So uh, that might be a, an impediment in today's crowds, uh, reading, reading establishment, but, uh, it's, I think it's, I think it's right. I think it's, it's accurate to the period and well, accurate to the characters. You did extensive research, not just a little research. Uh, about two you years go over yeah. some of what you went through to write this book. Yeah, I didn't, I found out I didn't know anything about any of this. I grew up in this part of the country, but my community was a farming community, not a 
there were no cowboys in my school. We didn't, nobody wore boots and jeans. Uh, if they did, that had been made fun of. Uh, it was very much a farming community. And um, yet we were supposed to be a cowboy culture. And if you see the, you know, go by the billboards on the highway, you'd think so. Uh, but none of that was really true. And so when I started writing it, I wrote about 150 pages, I guess, and realized I was guessing at way too much. I didn't know anything. And so I stopped writing entirely and went to doing research. And I was able to amass a pretty sizable library of Texana and Western Anna uh, at that time. Uh, reading history, uh, nonfiction accounts, as well as novels about the period, and trying to sift through what was accurate and what was not. And I mean, I did all kinds of field research. I uh, went to, uh, I didn't know what people ate in restaurants in, you know, 1876. I mean, when you sat down in a fancy hotel restaurant in Memphis, Tennessee, what did you order? What, what could you order? And so I went to Memphis and to the Peabody Hotel and they let me into their archives and looked at menus from the period, which was very enlightening. That's I didn't pretty know cool. You see the ducks. Yeah. Oh yeah, I saw the ducks. All right. I took my kids back to see the ducks many years later. But it was a uh, it was enlightening. I <clears throat> knew nothing about <coughs> oh, excuse me. I knew nothing about the fact that people didn't eat much beef. I thought everybody ate steak. If you watch John Wayne movies, you'd think so. Uh, and nobody, almost nobody ate beef uh, because beef couldn't be preserved. Uh, mm. Pork could be. So people ate pork and they ate a lot of uh, fowl because it could be fresh killed and served up. Fish, lots of fish. And uh, lamb and, and uh, that sort of thing uh, were com common fare. And even on the, I, I didn't know what buttons were made of. I didn't know when zippers were invented. I didn't know when, uh, anything about armament. Uh, I thought everybody carried a Colt Peacemaker until I found out differently and had to do a lot of research on that. I didn't know how much a wagon could hold or how big a wagon was or how to, I knew how to saddle a horse because I'd grown up doing that kind of thing. But yeah. I didn't know how to do it with a 19th century tack, which is completely different from modern uh, saddlery and tack. So all that and was... you hang out with some reenactors. I did. Oh, I went to uh, Fort Concho some... and various places where they had living history museums. And these people are enthusiasts. They know it and uh, they live it. You know, and they, I think in a way, it's a little bit of a sickness. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> sort of like going, I suppose it, in science fiction if you go to a star wars convention yeah, so, yeah so. It's, it's benign it's like a benign brain tumor that gets hold of you right but from. it's very accurate i mean they, this guy put me through it he had me loading black powder weapons and hitching up mule teams to wagons and uh doing all kinds of of, of things so i would know what it was like to do these things and how long it took to do them and that was kind of because in my experience you know people want to ride out after the bad guys from a town they simply ran into the barn and 10 seconds later rode out on a fully saddled horse i didn't realize it'd take a good 10 15 minutes to even for an expert to saddle that horse and uh, if the horse was in there and available so uh, there was a lot to that that i had to kind of figure out 
I did a lot of Indian research, but I lost all of the Indian material out of the novel before uh, before it was published, and um, which was which greatly saddened me because I put a lot of time in it on it, and uh, uh, a lot of terrain, a lot of stuff about the flora and fauna of the area. I knew what it looked like, but I didn't know what it was called a lot of the time, you know, because it's just weeds to me. It didn't matter, and. So I, I had to look up a lot of that and I went out and stomped around on a lot of it, you know, sometimes that's very important for a writer to do. And so I, I but I spent two, a little over two years doing that. And I had a, got a research grant to do some of it uh, for one summer and I was able to uh, sort of, I didn't really take copious notes so much as just absorbed it and made notes on specifics. One of the things that was kind of curious the plot centers on a transport of illegal whiskey uh, to Santa Fe. There, that's the idea. That's the money. That's the money uh, payoff on the whole thing. And this, so they're hauling whiskey on this wagon train, which is contraband. They weren't supposed to do that across areas that were uh, in or near Indian reservations or anywhere near hostility, because it could be misused, of course. And I didn't know how much whiskey they, I, first of all, I didn't know how much they could put into a, a keg or into a barrel. Uh, I had a rough idea, but I had to look that up. That was hard to find. But what was harder to find was how much it was worth, uh, the monetary value of um, uh, even a bottle of whiskey in a, in a saloon. And, uh, it, and it varied widely from place to place, but I didn't know what a bottle of bonded Tennessee whiskey would cost in 1876. And that was something that I had to look up and find out so I could calculate the value of the, of the cargo, how much a horse sold for. That's These sorts of things are the niggling details that wake you up at three in the morning and you go, is that, you know, how much did a horse, was a horse worth, you know, in, in 1876? And uh, that kind of thing was was part of it. And I have still have files full of notes on all of that, uh, that I've been encouraged to write another historical. I wrote one other historical after this, but, uh, tent maker, mm -hmm. but, uh, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a yeah. huge amount of work. Well, I want to, well, let's talk about tent maker briefly. Cause I, that is my favorite of your novels. I think in some ways the best thing I've ever done. It's yeah. It's a humorous novel, and I mean, in a wry sort of Clay Reynolds kind of way. Um, <laughs> well, it is. It's supposed to be funny, yeah. uh, and it's supposed to be absurd in its own way. There's a that came that the idea for that novel came from a, a song, and I'm I'm not sure who wrote it. I I think James McMurtry wrote it. James McMurtry is Larry McMurtry's son, and he's something of a. a sensational recording artist at least in texas and southwest he's kind of a bluesy folk folk sing folksy guy he doesn't really sing country but he so he doesn't really fit into any radio top 40 mold anywhere i've been to a couple of his live concerts he's very very good and uh i really like his music i think i own about all of his albums but um he has this song called level land that he recorded and 
uh, I first tried to actually on a cover that Robert Earl Kane did, but I went back and found that he. That's wrote, right. That, Cause I was like, isn't that a Robert Earl Kane story? Uh, yeah. Song? Well, he did a cover of it. It's a cover I, of the, of the McMurtry song. Yeah. No, either that or it's vice versa. I'm not really sure who wrote it. I've never looked it up uh, to see who wrote it, but the opening line has to do with people who were on the great migration West, uh, separated from the rest. They, uh either lost the wagon lost a wheel or they lacked ambition one so they put down roots down in the earth to, to, in the dirt to keep them falling off the earth and so forth and they called it level land but level land's an actual town actually way out in the Lano estacado flat plain yes yeah of west texas where everything's flat as it can be and i thought you know there, that's that's an, a great idea for a story and so i created a character whose wagon loses a wheel and he doesn't have a lot of any ambition and he's only he's kind of just wandering and, he, and i made him a tent maker uh a guy who actually makes comes from a tent making family a concern that makes actual tents and he has a wagon load of canvas and muslin and uh he's a pretty good he's good with the needle he can do it by hand or, you know, so forth. And in those days, they didn't do machine made tents very much. Everything was done pretty much by hand because sewing machine was a very new concept. And so uh, it was invented, but it wasn't widely used. And so I kind of just started with that and uh, created this character that turned out to be a kind of hapless I've used that word before with relation to breed love, but I'm using it here differently. Sort of a, a, a drifting kind of person who just sort of lets life come to him, but he has principles, core principles that he can't quite violate. And what it, the story needed was a woman. And I injected a, what I think is my best female character into, into this novel, uh, Margot, who is a, uh, a woman I fell instantly in love with, a character I could not stop loving. And she's an amalgamation of every woman I've ever known in my life who gave me trouble, and there are a lot of them, but all of their negative traits went into her in, in a way. Uh, she's beautiful and talented and smart, smarter than he is, but at the same time knows what the realities of 19th century female rights and limitations are and plays within that structure so the tension between them forms the the story of the novel and then the founding of a town that he never meant to found another influence i had on this was a film by uh, sam peckinpah called the ballad of cable hogue which i did not create a huge sensation it's jason robard's vehicle and but i always loved i thought it was a great a great idea because the, the subtitle is he found water where it wasn't and created a town out in the middle of the Gobi, uh, the uh, uh, Mojave Desert and uh, because he found a well, found water and and uh, water is what people needed on their journey west. So he, uh, it's kind of a comedy and has, uh, uh, doesn't have a lot of substance to it, but it's at the same oh, time, I, mean, I got that idea. There are a couple of instances where, what's his name, Hoolian? Uh, Hooli, yeah, Gil Hooli. He, uh, Gilbert Hooley, yeah. I mean, in the end, as hapless or or as 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 uh, as much as a reed as he might be in the wind, he is he's he's got this. 
there, there are certain moments when he becomes uh, absolutely, you know, heroic, um, or at least does what he thinks he has to do. Well, there's he has, as I say, core value that he won't step beyond. And, and there's some gunfights. Yeah, a sense of right and wrong, you know. And even though it may risk more than he wants to risk or take chances he doesn't want to take, I think he's like a lot of people in the real world who find themselves pushed up against a wall and just uh, they ultimately have to reach down on themselves and decide there's something bigger than I am, something more important than I, my, than my comfort safety. And I just have to take my stand here. And that's kind of what I wanted for him was that, that, that value to come through. And I think it's something that uh, ultimately Margot comes to realize and reckon with there's a wonderful scene in the book that I think is the best thing I've ever written. And I've sometimes read it, although I don't think my audiences really get it out of context, which is a, it's a Christmas scene where this little community that's formed around him are in this sort of makeshift store that's been created by a drifting cowboy and his prostitute lover. And they've had a child and the child is newborn and they are all in the store around a stove and it's warm and it's the community, everybody's there and they're having some sort of beverage and food. And it's just very, it's a very familial atmosphere sort of thing. And I think that that captures something of the warmth and the, the genuineness of the American experience in a sort of a Stephen Foster nostalgic way that I really wanted to communicate because I think that's what people really seek, even though they don't often always find it, is that sense of community, of belonging, comfort. And even though the outside world may be hostile, and in this, in this case, it's snowing and blowing wind and snow outside, it's not pleasant. So it's hostile outside, but inside it's warm and it's genuine. And there's this great feeling of love and affection that is not in any way tainted by the sins of the people who were actually there. So that's kind of, I like that piece. I really like that piece. Yeah. And you shouldn't, I, a writer shouldn't talk about stuff he likes, I guess. <laughs> oh, well. Once um, in a while, once in a while. And when I wrote it, I didn't feel that way about it. When I wrote it, but what I, I will admit, I, it, I was misty eyed when I finished it and I didn't touch, go back and touch it. Yeah. Left it go. Were you using a lot of the same, um, uh historical information that you had acquired from writing franklin's crossing when you were oh yeah maker oh yeah i had lots of details that i had was able to use particularly with regard to women in the west prostitution the creation of tent cities tent towns which were very common and that and dugouts and that sort of thing um the plainsman uh character but the uh, is certainly drawn from that but also the uh texas rangers which were just a little you know not even a half step quarter step off of being absolute outlaws themselves you know and were terribly feared and then the regulators who are were greatly feared and this i got a lot of flack for that because of the violence in the book it is a terribly violent book in places and I probably made a mistake in starting off with a violent scene. I think that put a lot of readers off. But um, uh, I had one contest I would have won had one judge not refused to read the book after the first chapter. 
Uh, but there you go. When you got three judges and one won't read it, that pretty much takes you out of the running. Well, you uh, might have thrown in some readers. That, that, yeah, I might have. Had they, they got to the second chapter, she would have been fine. Yeah. But uh, there is these people were horrible people, and a lot of them were just as they're described, alley trash. More, you know, more proud of the dirt they wear than they are of the dirt they are. And they are uh, they're they're not they're not many of them are psychopathic, and many of them were uh, seriously deranged. But the second rangers are just a half shade off of them. You know, they're pretty much murderers themselves. And so that element of it was was a, something I wanted to keep in there. Yeah. And there, but I also give them a kind of comic aspect too. I don't want them all to be evil. And in fact, the absurdity of it is part of the, the novel's thing that life is absurd. I mean, no one could right reality i just was talking to a student a former student about this week or so ago i said she's asking about the difference between reality and credibility and i said well you couldn't write reality if you wrote reality nobody would believe it if you wrote what if you wrote what ha about what happened on january 6th and december 6th nobody would have believed it everybody said this is pure conjecture fantasy action you know it's going to be an action film maybe you know put Den you know put dennis quaid in the in the main role and you're good to go uh but it happened and uh 9 11 same thing i wrote i said the same thing about that and you wrote about a bunch of arabic yahoos who hijacked three airliners and crashed two of them into world trade center nobody believed that in 1995 try selling that book you know and yet you know it happened yeah uh so these are the sorts of things that you can't Reality is is often unpredictable and much stranger than fiction, as the saying goes. But it's I'm trying to create a reality in the fiction that is credible, and because of its absurdity. I mean, Quana, where I grew up, Tony, was supposed to be the was selected as the city where Texas Tech University would be founded, and the city fathers voted against it. <laughs> The, they said no, we're in the town yeah they didn't they didn't want a bunch of bunch of outsiders coming in here and they'd had to vote a water bill to increase the availability of water and it was going to cost a lot of money and they weren't sure this would ever pay off and why would they want this here so it went to lubbock instead so um you know lubbock's now a metropolis and Quanta's dying, drying up and dying yeah uh, i believe so, birmingham alabama said something about the uh about developing an international airport and so yeah. leave it to atlanta yeah, want yeah. who wants it <laughs> we got the steel mills yeah well yeah it's it's happened my home before. region yeah the uh, city fathers in beaumont where i lived for 10 years they turned down opportunities to to deepen the port dredge the port make it a deep water port and they turned it down they didn't want the, all these sailors coming in there and this negative element uh corrupting the town and and that sort of thing so sure uh well they certainly installed a hurricane magnet that's for sure they well that's for sure <laughs> and this pollution and mosquitoes and yeah. it's what they're known for so uh you're on some other novels um these are contemporary novels players is your crime novel you're referring right to. right um, monuments revisits uh agatite and it's, it's right. less of a desperate novel and more of a, 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 
I don't know what you call it. It's a reverie on youth, but at the same time, that that sort of social commentary on a small town. Yeah, but, yeah, that's fair. And you have uh, the ghost of James Dean racing people in Texas <laughs> and threading the needle. Yeah. I wanted to write a book for each of my children and monuments was for my son and threading the needle for my daughter. Um, though she never was a, never drove cars like that. But the idea was this, the relationship between fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, I think was what I was trying to get to in both of those. I'm not sure how successfully monuments, I think is a pretty good novel. I, I like it a lot because it's sentimental. It also brought into a play, a character that I'd been wanting to write about that had was based on a character from my hometown, a guy from my hometown who we called, and this is a terrible thing to say, but what we called everybody called him dummy Wilson. And he was called dummy Wilson because he was mute and mostly deaf. And I don't have any idea why he was an old man, older man, probably in his fifties. By the time I was old enough to be aware of his existence, we were all terrified of him because he would come around and, and he, he loved children. He doted on, he's probably, was uh, uh, retarded as well if, uh, as having these disabilities, but he would come around and offer us a uh, popsicle or lollipops or something. And we would run from him and he, the older kids would throw rocks at him. And one thing, another really cruel, the church, two of the churches employed him as a part-time janitor. And he swept out the barbershops for money and swept off the sidewalks for money and was always in overalls and kind of a, a tramp looking guy, but um, I don't I have any idea what happened to him, but he was sort of a feature of the small town, a town characters were, and everybody liked him. I mean, nobody disliked him, tolerated him, I guess would be a better word, and was friendly enough to him, the adults were, and protective of him to some extent. And I thought, you know, being the town pariah, has certain advantages and disadvantages so i wanted to create a pariah character which i did in in the in the book and giving him a relationship with this young boy this teenage boy um who has a strained relationship with his own father who's very weak and his mother who is very strong but at the same time perverse in her own way uh was was sort of my way of of uh recapturing that time and that kind of milieu yeah. he's kind of a and, wise hermit in your book or uh, yeah yeah and, and, he lives in a boxcar right or something right like right and a lot of people did i mean there people would put these boxcars out on a piece of land and make homes out of them uh, these old boxcars and uh, so it made sense to me I, I mean i've seen people from a distance living in these and often they had large gardens and made a, made a regular home of it. Some of them even ran livestock in the back. You know, they, a boxcar could be a very solid piece of, uh, piece of domicile. If you, you know, don't mind the shape of it and it had nothing, you know, I, these aren't cattle cars. These were just regular freight box cars that had been retired by the railroad and were often offered for sale. I knew people, one, one guy lived in a caboose that he bought and set up in his, on a piece of property in town and lived in it for a number of years till it burned down and so that that sort of happened mm -hmm. and threading the needle i don't know where that came from uh i always kind of wanted to dabble in horror fiction and 
this is sort of my essay into that. I'm not sure how successfully, but I had a 67 Mustang when I was young and I always kind of abused it because Mustangs were as common as spit. The only thing more common was a BW bug. Everybody had them. So it was no big deal, but it's my parents did. Yeah. And looking back on it, I'm going, yeah, I saw one for sale, just like it on uh, this uh, online site for cars. And I think it was $27,000 for this same exact car that I tore completely up and ran 150,000 mile on and blew the engine out of um, before it finally fell apart. And that was nothing. Yeah. I didn't feel like I'd wasted a, a big deal. You know, it was just a car, <laughs> but you know, these, your attitudes change and but I wanted to write that one because of, of the sentimental relationship also between the girl and her deceased brother, um, which I think sometimes those sibling relationships can be extremely powerful. And I wanted to kind of capture that too. And I wanted to write, see how I could do it writing suspense fiction, uh, which is not something I have ever tried, had ever tried to do deliberately before to create a, a to build toward a suspense climax. And I think it, it probably came off uh, just as as uh, as as well as it could be expected. So, uh, what Clay? What are you working on now? Uh, you <laughs> retired from your. I mean, you spent years running that creative writing program at UTD. I did, South. yeah. Uh, and I, it did impair my writing. Uh, you taught there. You know what it does to you. Uh, it makes it difficult. Uh, if you care about your students, it becomes very difficult to get your own work done sometimes. It sure does. And then you add in caring about your family mm -hmm. uh, on top of that, plus, you know, just growing older, which saps your energy. Uh, pretty soon you're, you're, you keep saying, I'm going to get started on something uh, as a matter of, you know, brushing your teeth. Uh, I have a couple of projects that are half started. Uh, well started, I should say well begun, and I have put aside for the time being. One is, uh, both are nonfiction, uh, uh, which may or may not be a good thing. One is a memoir of 1968. I spent 1968, a uh, portion of it, the summer of it in Houston, driving, as I mentioned earlier, a bottle truck for a 7-Up company, and uh, going broke, chasing a girl that I never caught. And, well, you should have uh, maybe driven a car instead of a seven up truck. To yeah, maybe I should have. I drove <laughs> that car down there. I'll tell you, that was the car. Yeah. But no, it was a, uh, it was an adventure. I was 18 in Houston, um, on my own completely. I try to imagine that of a 18 year old today. Uh, my parents were very much opposed to my doing it and they, they didn't support me for it. They did bring me home finally when I went broke. Um, but, you know, renting an apartment and setting it up and going through all of the, um, uh, the, the mechanics of doing that now seem, un, you know, when I look at some of the freshmen I've taught over the years, I'm thinking, I couldn't imagine these kids doing that, but I did it and I got yeah. this job driving a set. I've tried two or three jobs before I landed on seven up. I sold encyclopedia and did a, worked in a fishing lure factory for a short time, but then I went seven up and it, uh, that was an adventure too. That was 68 was a seminal year, important year. So much happened there. It's a watershed year, I guess is the best way of putting it. 
I think there are always a few years are like that. 1876 is like that. Um, I think maybe 1918 is like that. Uh, there's just a few years in which so much happens. And in that particular context, we have Martin Luther King assassinated, Bobby Kennedy assassinated. You have the Democratic National Convention after the Republican National Convention in Miami. You, you've got these city riots that are going on and around the country. Vietnam has heated up. LBJ decides not to run again. The Tet Offensive occurred earlier in the year. And so you got all this stuff happening in 1968, just swirling around you. And yet what I remember most about it is the rock and roll. I remember the music and uh, the experience of, of, of living in Houston and the Montrose area, which now is, I think, a very, uh, uh, what they call a hipster area in Houston, very upscale history. But then was old and kind of decrepit and falling apart and in decline and was uh, uh, the scene of a lot of uh, beatnik activity. Uh, and I got involved in some coffee shop groups and people like that while I was there. So I had quite an adventure that summer and it was a coming of age sort of thing. So I'm working on that and I'm, I like it, but it's not politically correct and I'm not sure how it'll be received. <laughs> and in that same vein, I'm working on another longer piece uh, or long piece uh, about uh, racism. And it's not what a lot of people might think. I'm trying to, in a way, kind of do an analysis of what it means to be a white person of privilege, a privileged white person in today's America, and to respond to what's going on uh, culturally and sociologically, as well as racially in the country, and to try to put that into a context that I think makes sense. It's not um, a confession or anything of that nature but it's also not a condemnation it's an acknowledgement of of generational uh coming of age again of a of a sort of sense of awareness that that awakens over time of the realities of of the society in which we live it's not political it's not meant to be political and it doesn't take a a stance one way or another it's simply a kind of uh analysis and and memoir again it's based in memoir of uh, what it's like to grow up in a world that starts in the Jim Crow, in the depths of the Jim Crow era, when no one thought about these things or even talked about these things. And suddenly to find myself now at the uh, other end of my life, when it's so, when, when one becomes so aware of it that you can't escape it, you can't escape being told about it. It's mm -hmm. everywhere we turn yeah. and how to react to that as a person uh, who is in the in society and who is politically astute, I think I am and aware, but without being an activist of any sort or trying to take any kind of stance on it and to be both fair-minded and at the same time real about it um sifting through the bullshit is is sometimes harder than it looks and getting past the noise into the meaning behind the noise 
is kind of what this is an attempt to do. I don't know if that, that will ever go anywhere mm. uh, or I'll ever do anything with it, but it's good. It's good writing uh, for me, good writing exercise for me. Well, it sounds like a, a characterization of all your fiction, actually, that last sentence you said. Yeah, well, that may be true. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's a there's always a nuance and a and a beauty to your uh, to your work, and n n things are not uh, cut and dried in Clay Reynolds' novel, but neither are they uninteresting. There's always a complexity and interest to to what you do, and a lot of it's about Texas. <laughs> it is. Uh, I write. You know, when I started out, I say I did not want to be identified as a Texas writer or original writer at all. In fact, I rejected that whole idea from Dick Merrick or his publicist at Dutton sort of, I mean, at St. Martin's advanced it. And uh, I had a big falling out with his successor there over at Michael Segalian and I fell out over it, uh, arguing about it. But I was stupid about that at the time because I finally awakened to the fact that the sesquicentennial was going on in the state. And that Willie Delson and Waylon Jennings and that whole music thing was going on and film was going on about Texas and Westerns. And it was hot. I mean, people started wearing denim, uh, everywhere, you know, and you could see cowboy boots in Manhattan. And you, you know, I mean, I can remember when kinky Friedman's place in Manhattan was the only place you could buy chicken fried steak east of the Mississippi. And, you know, and, uh, the, when Johnny Carson couldn't pronounce jalapeno when he was introducing the, the bean dip commercial on his show. I mean, this goes back to a, you know, a, a time of transition and there was a certain opportunity there that I finally decided I better latch onto. And I don't really apologize for that. I, I know McMurtry had his t-shirt said minor tech, a minor regional novelist that he wore around for a while after uh, horseman passed by was published, I think. Um, I didn't feel that way, but at the same time, I didn't like the branding, you know, the identity, but I finally decided it was better to embrace it than it was to reject it. And maybe it wasn't going to hurt me any, maybe now it does. Uh, I don't know, particularly given the political circumstances of the last several years. Well, I don't uh, know, but the way that people get into, I mean, the, 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 the way that things are advertised can interest people. And then when they start reading it, they realize that they've got, um, they've got something unique and, and cool in the same way that, um, you know, anything, any art that you come across can be a, a right. genre, but if you're good at it, it's not going to be a, it's not going to be a disappointment. And I think that these are great books and Thanks. thank you. And, uh, we have them for sale at bain.com and uh, across uh, all the platforms where we distribute. I would, I, it, just for me, and because I'm a science fiction guy and there are a lot of affinities between historical fiction and science fiction, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I would say a good place for a lot of our listeners and, and viewers to uh, get into this is, is to go to the, the historicals, the tent maker and Franklin's crossing, and then try it try the um you know if you like ghost stories try that crazy uh drag racing uh rock and roll one and uh if you like quiet reflections on small towns that are dying around you even as you <laughs> as you are the sheriff of it you know go go watch go uh, read the vigil um 
which is it's just, i mean i'm mischaracterizing it. it's a beautiful uh, reflection on uh well the vigil i think the vigil strange and yeah. sort of doomed relationship so the vigil has a haunting quality i'm told by particularly by filmmakers who optioned it but never made it uh they find it intriguing and it would be a all challenge would, yeah it, it well i think it would be although i've come close i have twice or three times come to contract on it but then there's always a glitch and uh i i it, the film never got made films never got made uh, but uh it would be nice i mean it would be a way of getting the book out I, I i really don't care about the movie i like to have the money from the movie i would really more interested in what it would do for the book because it's the books that matter to me and um the, the thing about you know and i, I don't want to prolong this i know you're on a time thing here but there's a, a a sense that you reach a certain point where you feel like you said what you have to say and i don't want to be one of those old duffers i'm reading a book right now i won't name the writer who's in his late 80s and still grinding them out and they're just getting worse and worse and i would i think it's a bad legacy to leave you know where essentially he's become kind of a parody of himself um yeah i think i know who you're talking about yeah, you might you write about well. new orleans a lot no no a different guy uh, uh, a different guy but uh, yeah anyway. <laughs> yeah but it just sort of made me sad to read it and think of the power behind his earlier work and how significant it was that he feels this need to continue to get something in between two covers and he's going with very small presses smaller and smaller all the time and his work just getting weaker and weaker and i'm thinking it's almost an embarrassment um it's sort of like trying to see some old duffer out you know still trying to be a nfl quarterback or you know still trying to play with the nba or or, or something when they really are past it you know they, they've they've lost whatever they have when they were 25 and now they're in their 40s it's time to or coming up on 40 it's time to hang it up uh, you just have to know when to, uh, McMurtry has a wonderful essay about that in his, uh, book in a narrow grave called, uh, a valediction and uh, which, uh, you know, take my saddle from the wall kind of thing. And, uh, this idea of there, there comes a time when it's best to just call a halt to it and say, I'm done. You know, I've, I've said what I have to say. I'm not sure I'm at that point yet. And I may get a stimulation and start working on something tomorrow or tonight that could happen because it comes it, it, you don't know when it's coming from but i don't write deliberately i don't sit down and try to think up something to write uh, i i want it to come to me and if it comes to me and i can't get rid of it that's the best thing that can happen well uh that is uh that's a good place to leave it i think but i i do not think you're done and uh i hope that you aren't and uh, but we've got a long body of work that uh, that you've left behind a trail that the readers can follow on if they want to well i would love for that to happen and i would love to hear from them if they like it or if that matter if they don't i don't care i can ignore the nasty stuff <laughs> a sale is a sale you know <laughs> that's right that's the way we look at it too sure well, Clay Reynolds, thank you so much for talking with us today. About thank you, Tony. I appreciate it so very much. Thank you. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. 
Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. CNO's Office, Admiralty Building. City of Old Chicago, Old Earth, Sol System. The comm pinged. Winston Kingsford snarled at the sound. He'd left strict orders that he wasn't to be disturbed by anybody short of Inokenti Kolokoltsov himself, while he tried to make sense out of the confused reports from TF-790 survivors. And since he'd just finished speaking to Kolokoltsov 20 minutes ago, and since if anyone in the entire Sol system understood why he needed to be left alone to get on with it, that someone had to be Kolokoltsov, he rather doubted this was the permanent senior undersecretary for foreign affairs, which meant whoever was pinging his comm was about to acquire a new anal orifice. It pinged again, and he stabbed the acceptance key angrily. What? He snapped. Excuse me, Admiral, Chief Petty Officer Chernova said. She'd been Kingsford's personal yeoman for well over 10 T years, and she sounded remarkably calm in the face of his obvious displeasure. I said no interruptions, Marillus, he pointed out ominously. Yes, Admiral, I know, but Brigadier Geddes insists on speaking to you. Gaddis? Kingsford blinked. You mean Simeon Gaddis, the gendarme? Yes, sir. He says it's urgent, a matter of life and death. Kingsford started to refuse. He couldn't imagine anything that might be life and death to the gendarmerie that didn't come a piss-poor second to keeping his navy alive. On the other hand, Gaddis wasn't stupid. In fact, Aside from a certain quixotic streak, where things like corruption were concerned, he had a reputation as one of the smartest people on the block. He was also one of the people who was most likely to have heard the truth about Operation Fabius, not the garbled accounts of victory which had leaked to the boards. That meant he had to know Kingsford was going to be less than responsive to anything else for a while, from which it followed, Well, in that case, I guess you'd better put him through, Marillus. He sighed. He's not on the comm, sir, Chernova replied. He's here in person. Kingsford's eyebrows tried to climb into his hairline. Then he shrugged. In that case, change that to, I guess you'd better send him in, he said, and stood behind his desk as Chief Chernova showed the gendarmerie officer into his office. Under the circumstances, he decided to dispense with the customary offer of refreshments and twitched his head at the office door. Chernova smiled faintly and effaced herself without another word. With all due respect, Brigadier Gaddis, Kingsford said then, waving brusquely for Gaddis to take a seat, this really had better be damned important. I know the boards are starting to talk about our great victory, 
But to paraphrase King Pyrrhus, another victory or two like this one and we're all fucked. He showed his teeth in something that wasn't a smile. So, I'm just a little busy right now. Understood, Admiral. Gaddis nodded. In fact, that's why I'm here. There are a few things you need to know. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a hearty hi-ho silver and a who you callin' tanto kimosabi, along with thanks and praise to Clay Reynolds, Western writer extraordinaire and author of Franklin's Crossing, The Tent Maker, and other novels. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.